0: Welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 94, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me,
1: Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox.
0: Joe, Should I say guten tag, Ravi? How are you doing? I should be in <laughs> Germany at the moment.
2: You know... Uh but um, we're, we're pre-recording this show but I'll be there for the Amiga 32 celebration so yeah. there's 500 people coming and it's sold out I can't believe it you've been munching on a Brockworth right about now oh uh, yeah drinking I can't some believe nice beer. 500
0: people are into it Yeah. <laughs> the Amiga had a massive following over there probably I'm more joking. so than here actually didn't I'm it I'm joking oh. mate go to Poland
1: Pixar World it's yeah. like so yeah, you've got beaten up yeah. slagging
0: the Amiga off out there I will do <laughs> next,
1: next event I'm at
0: somebody's going to just bang <laughs> but you're obviously you're taking a microphone out there with you
2: yeah I'm going to have a show report from there, and I'm also going to Amsterdam and going to Marcel's Amiga warehouse, which is this guy. He bought up all the stock from all the old shops around Europe. So basically, this is a center. He's got PlayStation display cabinets. He's got everything. This he, is just going to be complete heaven for you, isn't oh, it, Robbie? total geek week! Yeah, <laughs> I'm we, going to make sure I'm not on the show the week later.
0: <laughs> <laughs> if we never hear from Ravi again, he's just locked himself in. Yeah, you know, yeah I might never see him again. So, it. if you're coming along to uh, Amiga Thirty Two, if you're out there at the moment, maybe listening on your phone or something on the plane, then. Have an amazing weekend we'll have our ravi show report in a couple of weeks time now we've got a few letters this week on the show
2: oh excellent we've done this for a while the, the yeah. paper section I oh, oh, this. first time joe's been here for a letter section no he's, no, he's seen no paper i've done before.
0: The
1: letter
2: yeah, it all blurs into one <laughs> I, remember,
0: I remember last time we did it, it blew joe's mind because he, he lives in a paperless office you see so. uh, yeah <laughs> yes there you go i remember that god now the first one i've got to i to hand these pictures over because look look where look where that
2: Listener is checking out the show. Before. Oh, my gosh. Look at that, That's
0: look at amazing. that. amazing. A Taj Mahal.
2: Oh, wow. In Agra, in India. Well, Holding. Is, um,
0: well, if you want to get, I'll just quickly say beforehand, if you want to get a letter read out on the show, you know, it's a bit old school, but we're an old school show, all you've got to do is email show at com. We haven't got a PO box set up yet, have we, or uh, anything like that? But. That
1: would be fantastic. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Send your
0: birthday cards into CBBC PO box. I'll <laughs> 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 write your answer on the back of a postcard, <laughs> uh, or, or it was always a sealed down envelope, wasn't it? For competitions, yeah. I remember. Yeah. So this is uh, Bart Dehar, who uh, is a donor as well. He made the Hall of Fame a couple of weeks ago. I remember. Yep. Nice to hear from you, Bart. And he says, uh, "Cheers from India." He sent us a picture uh, listening with his earphones in outside the Taj Mahal. He said he downloaded some retro L podcasts for travelling, and uh, he's got a Raspberry Pi for gaming. In the hotel room as well. Oh which my god, I think that's
2: pretty sick. That is really cool. I'm so jealous. The Taj is just seeing a willed wonder yeah. and having our retro hour podcast next to it is fantastic. Thanks, Bart. You can see our logo on the
0: phone there as well. Yeah, that's awesome. So we'll stick that on Facebook in our little gallery that we've got on there as well. Uh, Mike Wright's been in touch as well. Now this might be one for you, Joe, because I know you're a bit of a you know, an RF head. Yeah. <laughs> now he says um, I've got a collection of about eight consoles that use RF cables. Yeah. I'd like to have them all hooked up at once and switch to each one. Do you have any ideas of what I could use? Now, obviously, when we went to your place, you know, we, we were quite appalled that you are using RF, I must say. Yeah, you were. should, should have been Scott or, uh, you know, at least Composite, but, you know. If you are still <laughs> using RF, like Joe, um, do you, what method do you use them? Uh, to be honest, I'm really, really old school, as you
1: saw uh, that day, and all of mine are all just... I, I ain't got a switch for it or anything. They're all just clipped nicely to the back of the units, uh, and then they are all been labelled very nicely by my wife. Oh, I so. forgot
2: you labelled all the cables. So as all as my right cables,
1: man. I've got little laminated uh, laminated labels on them just saying what they are, and then they're all attached to the back of the unit, and then I just unplug, unplug them once at a time, uh, which doesn't really help. Matt, unfortunately. Yeah. But if
0: you've got a nice wife like Joe, yep. is this what wives. Are? I've been married a couple of weeks now. My, my wife hasn't done that. Uh, yeah, well, that's because Sam doesn't like you.
1: Did she knit
2: you a dust cover for the Amiga?
0: Actually, she did do that.
2: It yeah, wasn't there it you, was, go, you go. It, it, Ravi it saves sis, the day.
0: She could stitch me an RF switch. But yeah, I mean, if I was to give advice on this, I'd say invest in like some nice SCAR cables and a switch box. Because yeah. it, it's going to yeah. look nicer anyway.
1: I'll tell you what, I, I will invest in one. And then next time I'm on the show, I'll say which one
0: I've got. Joe will pass on his experience. That's how retro I am. <laughs> <laughs> nice to hear from you, Mike. Uh, Peter's been on as well. He goes, uh, Ravi mentioned he was looking for a good Mega Drive with HDMI. Now, he's actually sent us a YouTube video. How I, This is printed, Dan. How am I meant to? Um, <laughs> well, I'm doing do it. I'm doing it. <laughs> do you remember back in the day oh when you'd hear websites read right out on TV and you'd have to type the URLs in? Okay, okay do So it, yeah. don't forget this. HTTP. <laughs> Yes. I
2: ignore all that. YouTube.com forward slash
0: forward www.youtube.be slash, <laughs> forward slash, www. <laughs> slash oh. capital O capital K XAM.
2: Just type it I am. Yeah.
0: To capital W WD capital M. Next time, then that should <laughs> ring up. send us a link. <laughs> now, I got will... it wrong. <laughs> oh, Ravi, just copy it off the paper. Well, essentially what this is... You, you're on it, Joe. Oh, no,
1: mine didn't work either. <laughs> I'm sure it's you read the... it out wrong. I've, got, you... the I've got, got the paper. You've got the paper and you've still got it wrong.
0: Well, essentially what this is, it's a modern version of the Mega Drive. The title of the video is something like um, Chinese Mega Drive knockoff, I think it is. And this does actually look... I mean, I only briefly saw the video a little bit earlier on. It looks a lot better than the At Games one that got an official release in the shops, which might not be a hard thing to do. Everyone's quiet because we're all typing, trying to find this No, no, I'm I'm having a look at it now, No, I can't
2: do it. The the fake Chinese (laughs) console, that's the one, yeah. Okay, what's it look like? It looks really nice, actually. Do you want to gather around, Joe?
1: I'll I'll come over. Taking the headset off. I'm coming
2: out, I'm coming (laughs) over. It's got a big 16-bit written on it. Okay. Does it look like the original Mega Drive? Not at all, no. (laughs) (laughs) Um...
0: See, Joe, Joe is Hello Mr Megadrive.
2: Right.
0: <laughs> Joe's sitting on his knee now, just to paint a picture. If it, if
2: it works well, wouldn't the, the ports, are they the same, Joe? The DB9 style? What, on the front? Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, they're the same, yeah, yeah. It looks all right, to be fair. Yeah. Uh, fast forward it a bit. Well,
0: the thing is about the emulation as well, because I know on the original, like you know that at games one, it was the sound was awful on it, wasn't it? And that, you know, emulation's got to be done properly, I think, for especially
2: for systems like that, where you've got a lot of purists. Um, it doesn't
1: look bad, you know.
2: Yeah, it's just got a little board in it. He takes it apart in this video and everything. Yeah, It, and it, look, it looks all right, look that, you know.
1: It doesn't look that cheap.
2: No, no. Could come, be a good system, you know. you
1: can get in Argos and stuff. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> normally the At Games ones, aren't they? Yeah. So we'll put a link to that uh, YouTube video. I mean, we'll have to do a bit more investigation, Ravi, but you know. Thanks for that, Peter. Yeah, thank you very much. And I'm f- back. <laughs> Welcome back, Jim. <laughs> and our final letter this week is from uh, Jan Visser, or Jan Visser, sorry if I pronounced your name wrong. He said, oh, and, and this, he showed us up here. He goes, hey, boys, I heard you saying you're the only weekly retro gaming podcast, but there is another one Ah. I listen to, and I've never skipped an episode. He goes, it's still impressive, though, that you turn one out every week. I can't imagine what effort it takes. And this is called the NGP podcast. And essentially what these guys do, I mean, I haven't checked them out before, but I'll definitely give them a listen this weekend. And they do... They have one game that they feature every single week on their show. Dan, we've been invited to go on it.
2: New Gamer Plus. Oh, have we? (laughs) 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 Well, I will definitely listen to them (laughs) this weekend.
0: So so you tell
2: us about these guys then. Well, they invited us to come on, but uh, we need to organise an actual date because it's been crazy here. But what they do is they say, pick a game of your choice and then... We'll do a show dedicated to that. It does sound familiar, now you say. It, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's quite cool. Yeah. yeah, they wanted us to come on. I think they're Australian. Okay, and they churn this out every week as well. Yeah, yeah. Just pick
1: so- a really obscure game for me. Like, Something nobody's ever heard
0: of. Just be like, yeah, that game. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, try and find the ROM. That's what they're yeah. yeah. Yeah.
2: So what we need to do is we need to contact them and then go on their show and somehow mess it up so they can't do one every week. <laughs> 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 we could take the crowd. Or <laughs> well, we can say with the
0: only weekly British retro gaming podcast, oh, yeah. Yeah. in Australia. But yeah, I mean, it, it, it sounds a great concept. I will be checking them out this weekend. If we, we need to sort that out and hopefully get on their show. I but bet I'll, they're not in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean, lads? We're in Lincoln. Yeah, we're kind of <laughs> but thank you for all your letters this week. If you do want to get in touch, all you got to do is email show at theretrohour.com. Now, obviously, you are spending a bit of time on YouTube there. Um, if you were to search this time rather than uh, type in, um, you'd probably find a guy called uh, The 8-Bit Guy who does a lot of retro videos. We're big fans of his channel, aren't we?
2: Oh, yeah. this This guy's like... Really detailed, to the point that he kind of looks at all the methods of retro-brighting stuff, and then finding the best method and like going through every single chemical and doing a strategic kind of look at stuff. But also he's into his old school, Max, which is something we've never really covered on this show. And he's just generally got an amazing channel, like... Well, is at this stage now where he used to be called the iBook guy, didn't he? And he yeah. focused
0: on, you know, remember, you might remember these, Joe, the, the old Apple um, iBooks that looked a bit like a toilet seat and they're all multicolored. Yeah, 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 yeah. Those ones from the late 90s. Yeah. He started buying those up in about 2005, five six. Okay. And he actually made a business out of selling them, you know, after Apple had discontinued them for a couple oh, really? of years. Yeah, so that was kind of his, he made his channel just to sell stuff on there, didn't he? You know, on eBay, really. Okay. started to get a lot of attention on there now. I think he does, he's, he's going to tell us soon he does YouTube actually full time. Well, actually, the 8 guy is our special guest on the Retro Hour podcast this week in around 15 minutes from now because we love getting YouTubers on because obviously we do get people that might come into our show who are fans of them and we get a new audience that way but also these are people that we watch and we find interesting they're always really interesting discussions
2: yeah and this guy's like He's a Commodore fan as well, so we've got to yeah. have him on there. But he's also got a channel called 8-Bit Keys, which is all based on music behind video games mm-hmm. and keyboards and all the old mm. you know, Casios and all that stuff, which is really good fun. And, and he's, got, a, he's got a big following now as well, hasn't he? Half a million subscribers. Yeah, yeah. which yeah. is nuts. Well, well, he also does uh, these kind of res- restoration videos, and I just yeah. love watching anything get restored on TV, you know, on MTV <laughs> or anything. It's just like, wow, look what they can do, and crazy techniques and he's doing a commodore pet at the moment you yeah. know the original old school one and it's even got a, a chassis like a kind of car you know you lift it up and then you put the yeah it has, up stick, to yeah. Get inside. Yeah. <laughs>
0: they don't make them like they used to no. do they? but i mean i always see him um, a lot of people you know and they recommend retro gaming channels on like forums and stuff he always seems to get mentioned these days yeah so uh, the 8-bit guy is going to be our special guest on the retro hour in just a bit now of course we did say that we are maybe Britain's only weekly retro gaming podcast. <laughs> we couldn't do it every week, though, without your very generous support now. Obviously, our donations come from all around the world, and we appreciate every single one, how, however big, however small, every penny, every euro, every dollar, every cent, everything we get goes back into the running of this show and allows us to keep doing this week in, week out, pays for the hosting, helps us go to events and that kind of thing. So thank you for your donations. If you would like to make one, all you have to do is head to our website, theretrohour.com. PayPal button there, Bitcoin, it'll take you five seconds, and uh, that will earn you a place in the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. Now, this week, thank you so much to Danny McDermott, our good friend Marvin Drugsma, Tobias Lindo, and Raymond Montalban, who all made donations into the running of the Retro Hour podcast this week. Thank you so much. Cheers, guys. Now, before we get to the 8-bit guy, let's go way back in the day. Do you remember episode one of the Retro Hour podcast? No you weren't you were born then i wasn't born apparently I, I, do, you didn't exist i'll yeah. do my
2: impression of episode one hello welcome to it was uh, so I, dry i, I never want to listen to that episode oh, ever man, again it's a bit cringy
0: we did get a yeah. lot of nice
2: comments on that show when we did it though do you yeah. remember yeah it's amazing yeah. listening to it back now and <laughs> you guys are so how...
1: amateurish well done <laughs> 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 all sympathy but, comments, but right? it was yeah.
2: amazing going back and seeing how we've kind of developed from then and, and Probably, fir- probably more professional. The, the first guy <laughs> yeah, <probably. laughs> first guy that we had on there was Alistair Brimble, and yep. he's a guy that I've loved his music for my whole life. You know, he did Rollercoaster Tycoon. And Mortal Kombat and the Amiga music Kombat, on, that was, on my, yeah, season, that was it?
0: And he obviously did the um, Amiga Works
2: um, re-release of his music, didn't he? Like A lot of them remastered, remixed. It was a proper album. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So he'd taken these kind of 8-bit samples and he'd t- turned them into a full... Beautiful orchestral kind of version of it, and you know, really made these tunes epic. And Alistair will always have a special place in our heart because he was our first ever guest. Now, I remember when
0: we got him on, we couldn't believe that he, someone of that caliber was going to come on our podcast. Yeah, yeah. And we've really got Alistair, you know, if if maybe he didn't agree to do that interview at that time, we might not have even bothered doing the show. So, that's it's it. Like, and
2: you know, he'd, he'd just done his Amiga Works Alien yeah. Breed one then.
0: And we met him at, um, in Amsterdam, didn't we, the Amiga 30 a few months yeah. before lovely guy absolute legend of a bloke and now he's going to be doing another soundtrack to one of his uh most famous games the I, driver game
2: you see i think there's going to be some popularity with people that like alien breed yeah but people that like driver it's absolutely huge because you remember GTA, and then Driver was the first kind of. I freedom. hate Driver. You hated it. Oh yeah. man, I hated it. Were
0: you a GTA fan though? Did you, so, were you in for the rivalry?
1: No, so I was, you know, just the tutorial at the start. Just couldn't get past it. <laughs> that was one of the <laughs> most notorious
2: hard tutorials. Yeah, there you G- go. Never played the I game. Said it. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: No, I played the game, and you know what? I didn't hate the game. That was just a really frustrating you know, weekend of my life. Well, well I'll say <laughs> Where My older brother had to do it for me.
2: <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the main thing about Driver was the kind of movie feel of it. So yeah. they yeah. tried to get the idea that people ran out of the way. It was all 70s kind of. That 70s style, vibe.
1: Yeah. Really, really good vibe. Really painted the picture really well. And I, mean, I think,
0: you know, technology-wise, doing that kind of, you know, the 3D perspective yeah. on the PS1, it was quite a feat, wasn't I it? I
1: remember opening official PlayStation magazine and it was a two-page spread of Driver and it just said, Driver, coming to PlayStation 1, it's, and it was just like GTA in 3D. Yeah. It was just like, so what? Yeah, <laughs> you know. <laughs> kind of thing. And, you know, it, it did. It lived up to the hype for a game in the late 90s in the PS1. Well, that
0: mm-hmm. came out 1999, didn't it? And, like, that's the same year that GTA 2 came out. So, so there well, you go. by the, yeah. the classic company Reflections as well,
2: mm. they actually bought it onto the PlayStation. Well, let's
0: talk Great. about the music in it.
2: Oh, yeah. It's like Star Skin Hutch or something, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> So imagine that, like, you know,
1: can you imagine that in the background of a porno? <laughs> <laughs> it, probably, it probably has been.
2: <laughs> but Alistair Brimble obviously made this music. Yeah, yeah, and I just imagine how he's going to make it much bigger and a grander sound and, you know, totally funky. Imagine if they have a driver vinyl release or something like that. Well, a lot of games are getting, like, and that would be perfect
0: on vinyl, wouldn't it, that kind of 70s vibe There's on such a
1: resurgence of, like, 8-bit and 16-bit soundtracks getting a... Uh, Um, Vinyl, so I wouldn't be surprised in the next couple of years that we start really seeing the next kind of like, you know, your PlayStation and your N64 soundtracks kind of getting that revival. On Imagine it, on that PlayStation
2: vinyls. logo in the middle of a vinyl spinning around. Yeah, <laughs> be cool. yeah it would be nice. Now, that is like a porno. <laughs> <laughs>
0: but Alistair actually just posted this on his Facebook, didn't he? He just put driver soundtrack, coming soon. Little tease. Yeah, oh,
2: yeah, you just know it's going to be good.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So maybe we'll have to get him back on, you know, maybe the second anniversary, trying to oh, get him back on and talk about wonderful. it. Wonderful. That'd be amazing. So 100 shows
2: later. Yeah, How
0: yeah. long now is it? So yeah, definitely look out for that Alistair, what a legend. Now, we were talking on the show a couple of weeks ago, obviously, Joe, about your Snez Mini.
1: Yep, still loving it. Still set it up in the, uh, still got it set up in the front room.
0: Nice little package.
1: It'll, yeah, mm-hmm. thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for
2: noticing.
0: <laughs> but obviously, the thing about getting a product like that is it comes in a nice box. It's yep. officially endorsed. You've got the logos yep. on that. I mean, we post a picture on our Facebook of you with your you know, collection, the old yep. and new. Looks like the original kind of packaging.
1: You know, and I'm a sucker for that. And, you know, official endorsement and just having it, for me, just anything that kind of comes in a box, big box like that. I mean, it's only a little box, but just having it on my shelf there, among my collection, it just looks really nice and... It just kind of—it's proud, you know. It makes me proud to have that as part yeah. of my
0: collection, kind of thing.
2: But you can do that with a Raspberry Pi. <laughs> but you can't. Who's that
0: nerd saying that? <laughs> well, that's the thing. As we posted about it on our Facebook, and people have been now there's a guy who's done <laughs> it. We—I was going to say an article. It's more of a rant, really, um, on the Hard dot net. It says, "Why spend eighty dollars on a SNES classic when you can install emulators on a Raspberry Pi and never shut the up about it." Now, he's obviously got a bit frustrated at the amount of people commenting that on Facebook posts, on forums and everything. And he essentially, you know, it is quite a brutal rant saying that people need to stop saying that because it is a completely different experience. And it doesn't make you a better person. (laughs) Doing it yourself is what he's essentially (laughs) saying. He said because there are people... Like you, Joe, who'll actually want to, you know, go out there and just buy a nice finished product rather than doing it yourself. And you know what?
1: And I can appreciate the Raspberry Pis. One of my friends, one of my best friends has got one. And he brings it over and we play it. And we mainly play arcade games on it. And mainly arcade games, which never got any sort of home release you know like cadillacs and dinosaurs and stuff like that yeah. uh, alien versus predator the arcade game um actually i got a snes release correct myself there okay. <laughs> but uh and we really enjoy it and it is really cool but there's just something not quite right about it you know just it, having it there and it's little white box blinking away it's not official it's cool it's a nice vibe there's a bit of a nostalgia there but that snes mini there was so much nostalgia with it and it was just like I say it was really nice having it on your shelf for God's well, sake I,
2: I, <laughs> I reckon a lot of people that kind of with these Raspberry Pi setups. They, they put so much effort into the emulators oh, yeah. and everything mm-hmm. that they have to defend it with all rights. Yeah, I absolutely. Like, you know, I mean, you know, they've invested I into
1: it.
0: In terms of, In terms of usability, you, you've got a lot more on a Pi. You can get every game exactly. on there.
1: Exactly. You, we're only getting 20 games on, this, yeah. on the SNES Mini and I get that as well.
0: But this blog actually, you know, this is kind of the process he talks about. He goes, of course you can do it yourself. Get a Raspberry Pi. Find a good emulator online like, like RetroPie. Place all your ROMs into slash home slash Pi slash retro slash ROMs slash SNES with your controller configurations in slash opt slash retro pi slash emulators slash pi SNES you don't even need a controller you can run it on a keyboard and, and it goes on and on and on yeah, essentially saying yeah, taking the mick out of all these people that are saying that that it but, is
2: actually quite a laborious
0: process yeah. but then yeah. to
2: be honest I think anything's laborious on the Raspberry Pi because it's on Linux and people aren't used to using Linux yeah. so that's another reason with the you know nintendo one you've got a nice little setup yeah. system already in there and you're totally oh, like, pseudo bash up you to turn, get all you turn of the nes this, you know? mini on and it's just like
1: what language english and yeah. you're on you are on no loading screens yeah. no pissing about yeah. no turning it on and going is it going to have sound this time because that's one of the issues i've had with raspberry pis in the past you turn it on you load up your rom and you're like, wicked, and it's got no sound. Yeah. And you're just like, right, brilliant, well, okay, that's it. The Raspberry... let's download
2: that again. The Raspberry Pi was intended to be a computer for kids to learn things on, an education, and a, a computer, not just a game console. So people like, ah, oh, Raspberry well, Pi, mate, it, it's it, the way to go. It, it comes with all the uh, advantages of a computer, but all the yeah. disadvantages as well. I'll tell, yeah. tell you the biggest disadvantage of it, they keep upgrading it and I've got so many in my drawer now because <laughs> the new yeah. version keeps coming out I pulled my number two
0: out of my media centre and put my three in there and I'm like what are you going to do with the two now you know what I mean? yeah, yeah. I've got my one still like gathering dust waiting for an FTP server or something to be put on Oh it.
1: my know. name's Dan and I've got all these <laughs> Raspberry Pis <laughs> yeah,
0: I'm on my swag twenty-five pounds <laughs> second boards yeah. so uh, I mean the Raspberry Pi don't get me wrong we love it on this show and we've talked about it loads but it is it's for tinkerers and hackers you know someone who just wants an easy plug and play system so I have it with Emulate is on the pie that sometimes, you know, the the control pad won't get recognized or just little issues like that, yeah, that, that you get sometimes.
1: Absolutely. I, I, or every time you boot up a new game, you're like, how do I insert a coin? Yeah, Like, what button is it now? Like
2: <laughs> I, I don't play games on it. I totally ignore it for gaming because it was just too much of a headache. Even setting up RetroPie, which is like the main thing, it was mm. too much of a headache for me. I use it as a cloud server. <laughs> That's well, you know, with totally me, though, though I,
0: I enjoy setting up stuff like RetroPie and that, and I've done it before, but then I set it up and I never use it. After that, I'm
2: like, oh, just All these games, <laughs> which <projects laughs> ones to play? Yeah, <laughs> I
0: never, there's that many on it. It's like, I guess, because we've talked about this on the show before, it's kind of like having too much choice is a bad thing. Because if you've probably only got 30 games on there, you're probably more likely to play them than if you've got like 10,000.
1: Yeah, there is there is that as well. Um, I find when we do go on the Raspberry Pi, that a lot of the time you just spend two minutes, three minutes just on a game just to kind of see what it is out of curiosity, where yeah. with the SNES Mini, with those 20 games, I'm more likely to spend like an hour or so just playing one and... You know, I'm casually playing through Final Fantasy 3 slash 6 at the moment. Um, you know, and it's just nice to kind of have that there. And I couldn't imagine myself doing that on a Raspberry
0: Pi. And you know. I find with the amount of games that I've got on my systems, I'm like, again, I do the thing. I play two minutes, but I've spied something else on the list that I'm going yeah. to move to next. And I'm already thinking Absolutely. about the next
1: game. You go and you go, oh, yeah, we're going to play this game. And you're scrolling through it. And as you're scrolling through it. You see, you know, Marvel versus Capcom. And you think to yourself, well, I wonder how that plays on the Raspberry Pi because that's quite a that was quite a later arcade game." So yeah. you're like, "Well, how does that run?" And before you know it, you only play, you know, whatever you were going to for two minutes yeah, because that... you go, oh, "I'll go
2: back to that now." Then you're not playing a game; you're just doing comparisons. Yeah, you? Like, <laughs> cool. yeah essentially. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. it with um, I was running my brother's like about a month ago, and he's got um, an original Xbox model with CoinOps seven or eight on there, and we were going through again. It was just seeing how stuff ran on it, but then we got to like N64 stuff. We're trying to buy GoldenEye, and it was glitching out all over the yeah, place. And yeah. it was like we're just laughing at it in the end. That experience, yeah. the MAME stuff ran great on it. But when it got to that, it, we're just like, I wonder what N64 games will work. Then we're not playing them. It's a, it's a technical exercise, isn't just it? See if it like works, the yeah.
2: only thing that I found works really well is point and clicks, and mm. that's with DOSBox or Scum. Mm. And that's because I can just start one game, and then I'm forced to sit there and walk through, and do all of the. It's not really a short game. You can play a point and click, you know. Well, let's
0: finish with something that's going to uh, make Ravi's day, because we have talked about this for a while. One of your favourite games is back, sort of.
2: Road Rash. Yes, I I love Road Rash. Fantastic game. Uh, Absolutely insane. But this, I've seen this new video, and it looks pretty brutal. This one does. Now, this has been. I mean,
0: I've got a feeling this has been around, kind of in demo form or videos, at least for at least a year, and this is often posted on like retro gaming. Facebook pages and stuff, mm. and I sent it to Ravi the other day, and he said, oh, "I've seen that before." We didn't know if it was fake or not, did we? Uh, but it turns out it's not technically Road Rash.
2: No, it's not Put an it, EA game, no, is it? But
0: it is in all but name and license.
2: But yeah. knowing EA these days, thank God it is. <laughs> <the> yeah, probably <laughs> yeah. to be fair.
1: So it's Road Redemption, the classic game. Road Rash is back with yep. a new name. That's what they're saying. It's back. So it's a little. I'm a little confused about it. Is it actually? And is it actually? I know it's not EA, mm-hmm. but is it actually Road Rash? Has it been developed by anybody who was
2: on the Road Rush team or anything like that? Because people are going, Road Rash is back. Well, it's weird because there was a, an official development pictures of a Road Rush that looked totally different to this, yeah. uh, which was a concept one, which just looked absolutely crazy. More like Burnout. Yeah. Yeah, that kind of style. Okay. Th- this, I don't know, is totally out of the blue. Well, this me, was.
0: But- this was a crowdfunder.
2: Oh, okay. Um, okay.
0: Yeah, a well while back. I mean, essentially, it's fans of the yeah. original game okay. who wanted a modern version of Road Rash. Because, again, I mean, you've, you've been saying you wanted a new version of Road Rash since gone... As long as I've known you, probably. Can I
2: have a new copy of Road <laughs> Rash? I don't know who if I would one? have imagined it as violently as they have with this because that seems to me that the element of racing and speed in it is uh, kind of a bit backwards to the fighting, but, yeah... I don't know. It's like Road Rash, you could always choose whether to race or fight. Yeah. You know, you could always just bomb it, it all, through there. It was all about the fighting for me. I didn't care yeah, where same I came. Here, same <laughs> here,
0: I just want to bash Last someone place, off place. Well, at least I kicked somebody off his bike.
2: Uh, well, well, there was also gambling between the games as well where you could Gamble all your points away. Say, I just remember
0: Gun- Gunther, used to hate him. In the game. <laughs> I always get
2: Gunther. Biff.
0: But, yeah, Biff, <laughs> Biff right, yeah, good old Biff. Uh, but this, I mean, it's a Unity game. Um, it actually, the initial release of this, now looking at the Wikipedia here and the Steam thing, it initially came out on the 18th of September 2014. So this has been around a few years, but um, the latest version of this has just come out in the last couple of weeks. Right. I of why it's probably getting attention again. And I imagine it was kind of beta versions and now it's kinda of yeah, getting towards like official, a finished product. Yeah. But they're saying
2: it's got four player co-op as well and split screen and multiplayer stuff so l- i'd
1: love it if the co-op was just like a motorbike with three side carts. <laughs> you're all just climbing on it
0: <laughs> well this is available on ps4 uh, windows xbox one wii u linux um see I- i've probably missed it on all these platforms wii i've u? got a wii u i've never seen it on the wii u I've yeah, seen that, according no. to the wikipedia page now there might be people listening to this going way lad this this came out years ago boys you know what i mean yeah. you've missed out on this um but I, again, it's just been getting a lot of attention recently. Apparently, the final release is planned on Windows OS Ten, and Linux on October 4th, 2017. So that was obviously a couple of weeks ago.
2: Wow, this is crazy. I may actually have to purchase it tonight and give it a go. Yeah, so it looks pretty
0: good. I mean, the one thing that threw me off a bit about it is Isola Road Rash when you got like uh, the chain or the yeah. baseball bat there's guns in this
1: yeah you can get a double barrel shotgun which is
0: pretty cool but yeah. maybe
1: you know what? moving with the times so you, you know can get sledgehammer as well I mean who's driving a motorbike with a sledgehammer
2: I love one where you're racing really really fast and it's like you can't tell anything's going on you've got to stay on the track dodge through cars and then there's someone next to you and you just smack them yeah. <laughs> and, <that'll> be, <laughs> and just watch them go off. That's just yeah. you driving home. Isn't yeah. it? <laughs> but it's it's only 15 quid as well. I'm just looking on Steam, so it's not that bad. Okay, but cool. Stuff. Well, yeah, absolutely.
0: So if you do want to download that, um, it is available now. The final version of it's just come out by the looks of it, so we'll put that in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Um, I'm not that confident they're going to do a, a final Wii U release, but... You never
2: know. Stranger well, to so. well, they they've <laughs> discontinued the Wii U, so I reckon a lot of third party people are now gonna jump on it and yeah. just kinda get these smaller titles out there. I've Maybe. got a Wii U, so I hope it Yeah, it'll back. be cool. We've all we've we've got you got Wii U. Well. Yeah I've got a Wii U, yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean it is kind of an indie developers playground right now The Wii U, isn't it so yeah because yeah. I've, I've been using the um, hacked firmware at the moment and you can load up loads of stuff on the different channels and all the emulators on there there's a Vectrex one as well. oh, you're, so, you're so
0: dodgy rabbi <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> dodgy Ravi. <Right.
1: Robbie. laughs> right
2: <laughs> <Robbie. laughs> yeah, that's,
1: that's right. even
0: nickname now no suggestions please <laughs> right there guys thank you for checking out episode number 94 of the Retro Hour podcast we will be out again available from all of your favourite podcast clients and the retrohour.com next week keep your letters coming in show at the retrohour.com and right now it's time for this week's special guest gonna get seriously nostalgic one of our favorite youtubers the 8-bit guy and we'll see you next week ciao enjoy you're listening to the retro hour podcast and it's time to welcome on this week's very special guest By far, one of our favourite YouTubers. Welcome to the show, David, a.k.a. The 8-Bit Guy. Hi, nice to be here. Yeah, really appreciate you joining us. Now, um, as I said, you know, Ravi and I are big fans of your YouTube channel, and we'll get more into that in just a moment. But I thought it might be quite nice to get a little bit of background on you. I mean, going all the way back to the start... What was your first computer experience? Where did it all kind of begin for you? Uh,
3: 1981, I guess. Uh, <laughs> I was six years old. So, yeah, I got a Commodore VIC-20. My uh, uh, my brother and my father brought it home, and, um, yeah, I actually still remember... Plugging it in for the first time and trying to figure out how to use it.
0: So what kind of stuff were you doing on the VIC-20?
3: Well, not a lot. I mean, we didn't have any games for it. We didn't have a joystick. Uh, all we had was just the computer and the TV. We didn't even have like a uh, any kind of storage device. We had no cassette drive, no disk drive, no nothing. So the only thing we could really do with it was uh, type in the programs that were listed in the owner's manual and try to figure out how to use BASIC. And um, that was actually a bit challenging Um because we didn't really have anybody else to ask for any question. My brother was only 3 years older than me, so he and he was just as illiterate on them as I was and I know like for the first uh, day or two we couldn't get any basic programs to work and we couldn't figure out why and uh, eventually I came home from school and my brother told me he's like I figured it out, I figured it out. And uh, it turns out we were uh, we didn't realize there was a difference between uh, the letter O and the number zero on the <laughs> keyboard. So, like when we tried to type in a line of BASIC, we would type in one O instead of one zero, and then you know, and it would say syntax error, you know, like that. We <laughs> so that that's how that's how we started. I mean, we pretty much had no knowledge whatsoever. We just trial and error and read the manual and. We figured out how to write some little programs and stuff.
0: It's crazy, though, that you had no storage method. So that meant, obviously, you were typing a program in and then losing it when you turn the computer off every time.
3: Yeah, I mean, but they generally weren't particularly long programs. So I guess we didn't really think much of it at the time. We were mostly just experimenting with what we can do. Like, oh, look, we can change the screen border color or, you know, oh, look, I can, you know, tap a program that prints hello all down the screen. And, you know, I mean, to us, that was pretty fascinating at the time, you know, so it'd be pretty mundane to a modern computer user, I'm sure, but... Uh, Would you spend any time in arcades at all? Not a lot, actually. I mean, we did have them here, but uh, um, they required quarters, uh, you know, U.S. currency, uh, and, uh, uh, you know, uh, we didn't really have a lot of excess pocket change, and, I mean, to go into an arcade and really play, you needed, like, at least a good 10 or $15 of quarters to to bring with you, we just generally rather spend our money on something else. So, uh, I I don't personally know anybody that went into arcades and played. I mean, I know they, people did, obviously, but just nobody I knew. We'd we'd rather rather spend that money on a on a game for our Atari 2600 or or um, our Vic 20, which you know we eventually got some games for that uh, as well. And yeah, I mean, I'd rather spend my money on that and and then be able to play it as much as I want, than to you know dump twenty dollars into an arcade machine and walk out empty-handed. And talking about games that you loved as a kid then, which, um, which kind
0: of titles did you really enjoy back then and what, what kind of have really fun memories for you?
3: Well, if you're talking the early 80s, um, most of the games I had were for the Atari 2600. And I seem to recall my favorite game was probably Pitfall. And we had a lot of games, but uh, I probably spent more time playing that one because, it, you know, a lot of the games on, on the 2600 back then, they, they didn't have a lot of variation. Like, if you play Space Invaders, it's the exact same thing, and, you, and Pac-Man's well, pretty much the exact same thing, you know, every time you play it. Pitfall was a little different because I mean it was a kind. I mean yes, it was technically the same thing, but um, because the map and the world that you could explore was so big, you tend to forget. You know, what screen comes next? Is it going to be you know alligators or is it going to be the oil slick or you know whatever? And it it just I don't know. I guess it had a little bit more mystery (laughs) to it. What was your local computer scene
2: like? Uh, Was that kind of local computer shops and uh, did you go anywhere gaming as a kid or meet up with groups?
3: There was nothing. Uh, I grew up in rural Texas. And um, we really, I mean, we did, you know, we had to drive 30 minutes just to get to the nearest city that might even have like an arcade or a department store or something like that. And um, I mean, that was where we got our Vic 20. Was it a, a department store? I think, I don't remember which one. It was some kind of like Target or something like that. I don't even remember now. Um, oh, it was Best Electronics. Which I think they've been out of business for a long time. Yeah, I remember that. That's, that's what it was. Now, anyway, yeah. So, I mean, there wasn't. Uh, if I wanted a game or something, that, that's where I'd have to get it from. Uh, the, and we didn't know anybody else at the time who even had a computer, so or or even a game console for that matter. So it's not like I could share the games with my friends or anything like that.
0: Well, after the <laughs> big, after the VIC twenty, what what system did you graduate onto after that? Then, which, which other computers did you go through?
3: Uh, well. About well, two years later, we got a Commodore 64. So, yeah, uh, quite a big upgrade. <laughs> and uh, yeah, they used that computer for several years.
0: It was a great machine, the 64, though. Because I mean, you know, imagine coming from—if you didn't have a RAM expansion for the VIC-20, 64K must have seemed like a colossal amount of memory.
3: Perhaps, um, you know, I never really noticed or cared much that much about the memory. Um, I don't know. That just, as a kid, that just wasn't something that I grasped as being important. Um, I mean, yes, I did write a few basic programs on the VIC-20 that I ended up with the out-of-memory error message at the end. I'm like, I wish I had a few more K of RAM. And obviously, I never had that problem with the 64. But, um, you know, I think the big upgrade for the 64 was just the, uh, the, the games were so much better on that machine than the VIC-20. And uh, to be fair, um, a lot of the good games for the VIC-20 I never had as a kid, uh, mostly because they were cartridge-based games. And Um, We just, you know, we didn't really have the money at the time to to go out and buy a lot of cartridge games. And uh, Commodore 64, of course, being more disc-based and being that we did finally run into some friends who had, uh, you know, at school by this point who had Commodore 64s, you know, the the piracy scene sort of uh, came into effect. And, uh, you know, so we were able to get, you know, a lot of games that we wouldn't have otherwise been able to To afford and so yeah so anyway there there was a lot of really good games on the c64 that kept me busy for quite a bit of my youth i I spent more time on the vic 20 just trying to figure out how it worked and trying to you know understand basic and stuff like that because i just like i said i didn't really have that many games for it so that just wasn't something i spent a lot of time doing on that machine
0: well obviously the Commodore 64 had the legendary sid chip i mean were you you into computer music back then on the 64
3: not really and uh i'll be Honest, I didn't even notice that much difference between the musical capabilities at the time. Mm-hmm. But I would point out that, you know, in 1982, most of the games that came out for the C64, they really didn't take advantage of the SID chip the way that uh, later games did. And, you know, in the later part of the 80s, I think once some of the artists had figured out, you know, better ways to, to you know, get more out of the the SID chip. so. I think in the early days, uh, I, just, I really didn't notice that much difference coming from the VIC-20.
2: Did you uh, make any films as a kid,
3: or were you interested in acting at all? Um, I was interested in it, but we didn't have really that capability. Um, my father did have a Super 8 video camera which you know recorded on film reels, but it wasn't something that was really available for us to use because it was expensive to use it and you had to get the film developed and, and of course the only way to watch it was to get a film projector and set it up. It was, you know, a real pain. Um, so we didn't get a, a video camera like, you know, that used like VHS cassette until probably the early nineteen nineties. <laughs> Well, did you,
0: like, kind of keep up with, like, games and news? I mean, did you buy magazines, or did you watch any Was like, computer
3: or gaming television around there? I wasn't familiar with any of the television shows at the time, but, yes, we did get the magazines. Um, most of the local department stores had a magazine rack, and there was always at least one or two computer magazines, uh, even in the rural areas of Texas at the time. So, yeah, I would pick up the uh uh, computes Gazette magazine and actually I think the first one we used to get regularly was called Ahoy magazine I don't know if you guys had that in the UK or not um, yeah and it was it was all Commodore based it was um, pretty much covered the VIC-20 and the C64.
0: Well I know on your channel you you know you cover the Mac quite a lot I mean did you um, kind of get your, get a Mac early on then when it was still 68k or was it a bit later when it was like power PC based?
3: Okay, so, yeah, I'll have to give you a little backstory on that. I didn't even become aware of the Apple brand at all until I got into probably junior high. So this would have been late 1980s, like, I guess, like, 1988, something like that. And uh, we had Apple IIs in the school, and I'd never seen them before, because my elementary school actually had Commodore Pets. And... Uh, so you know, they seemed a little bit at home to me because you know I had the Commodore VIC 20 and later the 64, and they operated kind of the same, even though the the pets were much less graphically sophisticated. But the the general operation of them was the same, and so I I kind of felt at home when they sat me in front of the pet. In fact, I actually often knew more than the um, the computer teacher did, even when I was seven or eight years old, <laughs> uh, which was pretty sad. But yeah, when I got into junior high, we had the Apple Twos and. The first time I saw them, my my first reaction was, these are the ugliest computers I've ever seen. <laughs> and uh, then, you know, we sat in front of them, and I'm like, the, you know, I didn't understand how to operate them, because they, they were very different, and uh, I didn't like them. And, you know, we did have some software we'd run on them. Uh, we had monochrome, green monochrome monitors on all of them, and so I never really got to see any color graphics, but I could tell that the sounds were just like beeps and bops and I just I despised them, and I remember telling all of my classmates how these machines are horrible. The Commodore 64 is so much better, um, you know. But nobody at that time had any experience with computers outside of pretty much what they saw in school. I mean, because most of the students didn't have any computer at home, so um, and there was no way for me to really show them the difference, so they didn't really pay much attention to me. But yeah, I didn't care much for the apples. And then when I got into high school, we did have a computer lab with Mac Pluses and Mac SEs. And again, never seen those before, um, and, you know, I had to do like my school papers and stuff because we had to go into the writing lab, and that's pretty much all we did in there was use MacWrite to uh, write our papers on, and I didn't like the machines, <laughs> actually. Um, I thought they were, uh, you know, the screens were really small, and they were black and white, and uh, but, uh, you know, I noticed all the other students around really seemed to think they were cool because they had the mouse interface, which... By that point, I had been using Geos on my Commodore 64. Actually, I think I had a 128 by that point. So i have been using Geos for, or some people call it Geos, or whatever. But anyway, I'd been using that for quite some time. So, I mean, I was no stranger to a graphical operating system. And I just, I wasn't that impressed with the, the Macs. And so I actually kind of had a reputation for being very much against those machines, uh, for most of my teenage years
0: you were an apple hater. It <laughs> yeah.
3: so it wasn't until much later that i realized my error um and my error was uh like with the apple twos um i didn't realize those machines were old like by 1988 the apple ii was pretty long in the tooth i mean it was almost 10 years old at that point and i didn't realize it was a technology from the 70s that we were using, you know, because I didn't have that much sense of passage of time, you know, in the time frame of things at that point. And so, you know, I was comparing my Commodore 64 to a machine that was, you know, a good five years older in technology. So it wasn't a really fair comparison to make. (laughs) And the same with the uh, Mac Pluses. By the time I got to high school, those machines were six or seven years old, (laughs) You know, so uh, again, I was not being fair with them because i you know I thought they were brand new because from my perspective, I just showed up at school there they were it's the first time i 'd seen them um, i I thought they were brand new, but apparently the school had 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 them for some time and looking back I, I see it on a very I, I see them very differently and now i 'm quite fond of the machines uh, looking at their history but yeah, at the time i I totally disliked them
2: <laughs> well uh what interested you in the kind of second-hand Apple market, it's, you know the iBook and then the clamshell one where you started and then
3: well um I guess I, I got my interest in the iBook simply because I worked at a computer store in the let's see from like 1999 to like 2005 and um so we, uh, I work in a, a, a very unusual computer store actually it's kind of hard to explain it's a uh it was store that they they tended to buy things either used or they they bought like off-lease lots of computers and they would resell them here locally in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And uh, they hired me as the service manager, so one of my jobs was to get all those computers, like we'd get a big pallet of them in and I'd have to go through and test them all and clean them up and you know, label like, you know, what the specs are on them, and, and so they could get priced and, and put out for sale, and, you know, we got in the uh, I, uh, iBooks every now and then, and I, I really liked them, and um, I guess my interest, you know, the way I, I, I guess you're, you're probably referring to the fact that uh, a long time ago, I used to run a, a, my own little personal side business selling those computers, and I don't know, almost 10 years ago, I, I, I wanted an iBook uh, clamshell, the G3. And, you know, those were already kind of obsolete even then, but they were still considered somewhat usable at the time. And I just thought they looked cool, and I wanted one, and I couldn't afford one. I, I, you know, my salary was, was pretty low back then. And so, uh, you know, but I'd looked on eBay, and I, I found this person who was selling a lot of them, five, five clamshells, all supposedly worked, and the deal was pretty good. And I thought to myself, it's like, you know, if I bid this amount on these, I bet you I could sell – four of those, and I could keep the fifth one for myself for free. Like, i essentially get a free laptop. And so I took a risk, and I used my credit card, and I, I bought them. And sure enough, I actually uh, I put the other four on Craigslist. Within a week, i sold them all, and I had a free iBook. And I was thrilled. And so uh, I thought to myself, it's like, well, you know, and I had upgraded the hard drives and memory in all of those because they were really low. And I thought, you know, I wonder if I could do that again, only this time sell all five. Because I noticed the same guy had another auction of, so I did it again, and um, and then I I just kept doing it, and eventually I, I eventually located sellers uh, who would deal with me directly and sell me hundreds of them at a time, and uh, so I got like a business credit line, and I just started buying these things by the hundreds, and and then I'd resell them on eBay and Craigslist, and I like I just like to stick with the one machine mostly because not because I was particularly an iBook fanatic, but just because. I realized that by sticking with one machine, I had an infinite supply of parts, and I got really good at taking that one machine apart and putting it back together. And and so it was just from a perspective of business sense, it just made sense to to, to stick with the one, one machine. So I that's kind of how I became known as the iBook guy. I mean, it could have just as easily been a PowerBook or a Dell machine or something like that. And, you know, uh, the iBooks were popular, and so there were plenty of them around, and so that that just worked out well for a, a business of, you know, refurbishing and reselling computers.
2: Well, I, I find it really interesting that you said you didn't like the look of the Apples originally, and then when the iBook came around and they got the new designer, um, Jonathan Ive, and kind of changed yeah. their ideas,
3: uh, you suddenly a well, fan of it. yeah. The iBook Clamshell and the Apple E look uh, quite a bit different. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I remember, I, I think my my first laptop was actually an iBook G3, but it was one of the later ones, you know, the snow white ones?
3: Yeah, right. Yeah, and
0: they were beautiful as well.
3: Yeah, well, that, that's what I, most of my uh, business was with, because uh, I, I, um, I realized pretty early on that the clamshells were becoming um, obsolete. So, yeah, before, I think, like, the first lot of, like, 100 that I bought were actually the white G3, and G, I think there were some G4 models thrown yeah. in there, too. And so that's that's what the bulk of my, my side business was for like two or three years, was the white iBook G3s.
0: Well, around that time, I mean,
3: going back about, must have
0: been just over 10 years ago, obviously Apple made the big switch from... PowerPC to Intel. I mean, did that kind
3: of hurt your business a bit? Nobody wanted the PowerPCs all of a sudden? Actually, that helped my business because um, uh, that's one of the reasons why there were so many uh, iBooks that were coming off lease. The uh, companies wanted to get rid of them. And uh, that's why I was able to get them so cheap is because nobody really wanted them anymore. But I mean, they were they still held uh, value because at that, at that time, they were still supported. You could still run most any of the Apple software and you know all the the different uh, you know whether it be iTunes or iMovie or you know whatever you could still run the latest version of them. they were still supporting the the g four platform for another couple of years and so they were really good deals and at the time you could surf the internet on those things pretty well, um, but now you can 't i mean it 's not like the computers have gotten any slower it 's just that the uh, the websites have become so complex in the last ten years that that you just you can 't hardly even surf i mean you can do like wikipedia and that 's probably about all. All you can surf on those old machines now. But, yeah, at the time, they were actually a pretty good computer for, for people to have, and I was able to sell them for, I don't know, I was selling them for like two or $300, and that was with a, like a 50% markup on them. And, and so it was a good deal for people who needed a laptop, you know.
0: Well, you have, you have done videos in recent years, like showing kind of how usable you know PowerPC Macs are. I think you there are still some uses for like you know a G5, for example, one of the higher end ones. I know they're obviously use a lot of power in comparison to like you know more <laughs> modern machines, but they, they are a bit usable still in many ways, aren't they?
3: Yeah, well, it depends on what you're using them for. Um, I still use one. In fact, uh, you know, I go to these uh, gaming conventions. Uh, in fact, um, uh, I just got back from New York, and I'm going to Portland, Oregon here uh, next month to do a convention. And you know, they always give me an auditorium and They want me to speak in front of people. And one of the things that's kind of like my trademark thing is I actually bring an iBook G4. That's, that's the computer I bring. Nice. I, I have to take that through airport security. And I set it up on the projector, and I run all my slides and everything from it and uh you know, I always crack a joke about you know i'm probably the the person here you know all the people giving presentations today. I'm probably the person with the oldest computer going <laughs> to give a presentation with this old iBook g four and so that's that's what i do um, so yeah i mean i still I still use it to uh write my uh my scripts uh, in fact, i even use my clamshell i've got, i've got a couple of those actually, and i'll um You know, when I want to sit down, and it sometimes takes me an hour or two to write out the script for one of my episodes because I have to do some research and think about it, reorient how I want to present the information. And so I just want sometimes to sit down in my easy chair with my laptop and, yeah, I'll grab my uh, G3 clamshell because they're real comfortable to type on and they still work great for for doing that. (laughs) Well, let's
0: talk about you on YouTube then. What originally inspired you to like pick up a camera and think, you know... Will people watch this? I'm going to make a video about this.
3: Well, believe it or not, that started because of my um, iBook business. Um, So I I was selling those on eBay. eBay charges a ridiculous amount of money. Um, You know, they charge like 10% of of your sale, plus then PayPal takes a little bit too. And and so uh, I wanted to set up a website and sell those computers directly. And I was trying to figure out some way to drive a little bit of traffic to that website so that I could sell computers without having to pay the fees. And so I got the idea. I was like, "Well, why don't I make some YouTube videos about these computers?" And uh, you know, I'll put a link to my website in there, and you know, maybe that will drive some traffic to the website. And at the time, it didn't really work. I, I don't I don't think I ever really got more than two or three sales on the website, and I don't even know if they came from the YouTube videos or not. Um, and I actually quit doing that business for a while. But uh, people kept watching those videos and kept emailing me asking if I was going to make more, make more, make more. And uh, I'd already had, like, I don't know, twenty or 30,000 subscribers at that point just watching these videos I did on the iBook, and they, they kept asking for more. So every now and then when I had some free time, I'd just make another one just for the fun of it. And then somebody told me, he says, David, why don't you monetize your channel? Because I, I knew a friend at uh, work that uh, had monetized his YouTube channel. He told me how he was making, like, $15 a, a month. And I'm like, well, you know, hey, I could use $15 a month. And, you know, I monetize my channel. So I did. And I think the first channel, I ended up making, like, 40 or $50. I was like, you know. Wow! Holy cow! And then I, I did the math, and I'm like, "Well, I we have like 10 videos, so that's like, you know, four or five dollars a video. So, hmm, if I had like hundreds of these videos, maybe I could make a lot more money. So I just got back to work making more, but I kind of ran out of ideas for iBooks. I mean, there's only so much you can say about an iBook. And then I thought, well, you know, I need a different topic. So I thought, well, you know, I like retro vintage computers. Let me let me see if there's any interest in that. So I, I made a few videos on vintage computers, and they were popular, so... Uh, well, did you have these vintage machines then lying around, or did
0: you have to go out and buy them for the channel?
3: Well, at the time, I, I had a few. I mean, I, I'd been collecting them for a while, and but, no, I mean, nothing like I have now. I have, like, you know, way, way more of them now. And uh, at, In the early days, for the first couple of years, I was buying most of them myself, so I would take... Um, you know, I was making... Oh, I don't know, after I hit about 100,000 subscribers, um, I was making several hundred dollars a month on youtube ads and i was actually spending most of that income on buying more retro computers so that i could show them (laughs) on uh, the channel the good news is now people just send them to me so i don't (laughs) actually i still buy i still buy some actually i'm looking at two or three here that i just i just bought uh, that came in today that um, i bought on ebay Uh, but uh, yeah people are (laughs) definitely sending me a lot of stuff now so i don't have to buy quite as much
2: well, I've noticed on your channels the kind of videos that are really practical do really well. And uh, watching people restore machines and fix them, I think it's a very kind of nice and special feeling watching someone actually care for a computer and bring it out in a really nice quality. Uh, do you kind of feel that these videos uh, do very well?
3: Well, um, yeah, that's a good question. And so I've been spent some time thinking about that myself because not all of my videos are about restorations, although I think more of them have been about restorations this last year than I think before I've I've uh, I've concentrated more on those because people do seem to like them. And when I really started to think about that, um you know, my parents for example and even my wife like watching these shows where they fix up old homes and uh and and I know some people who like watching shows about people fixing up old cars and restoring them. And so I think it's really kind of the same thing. If you kind of have an interest in that, you you see this old, you know, neglected, abused machine. And, and you know, and if and if you have emotional connection to those type of things, and then you kind of want to see, you know, it finally get its, you know, its, uh, I don't know, vindication or whatever, you know, it gets, uh, you know, restored and finally somebody cares about it again, you know, and <laughs> I guess, I guess that's what it is. Well,
0: you actually did a, a series on, well, you didn't really, at the moment, aren't you, the, the Commodore PET, um, like restoring that, mm-hmm. and, and that must have brought back some, you know, nice memories from your school days and seeing it in good working order again.
2: And they're really heavy as well. You must have kind of had some good supports on your desk <laughs> when you put <laughs> that on. Oh,
3: yeah, it's, it's pretty sturdy. Yeah, I'm working on the uh, follow-up to that right now. I'm uh, working on the uh, Commodore VIC-20 episode. And so, uh, yeah, I'm going to have a lot of of childhood memories to throw into this uh, video, along with just, you know, the raw specifications and stuff like that, too, you know, give a little bit of a story behind the machine. It's actually nice to
0: see, you know, um, someone from you know, America actually doing a video about Commodore as well. They were a very big company over here in in the UK and Europe. But obviously, you know, generally in the mainstream, do, do you find they they kind of get forgotten compared to like Apple and Microsoft by most people in America?
3: Yes, uh, you know, I do. In fact, I, I mentioned that in my last video that I feel, I feel like um, most of the historians and stuff, they just they don't even mention Commodore. You know, you hear Apple, you hear Microsoft, you hear IBM. Those are the three companies that all the documentaries and all the magazine articles and everything focus on and Commodore is sometimes a footnote at best and that's pretty sad because they were extremely popular here in the United States as well they were definitely the most popular computer in the early to mid 1980s without question but the thing is I think a lot of people you know have forgotten about them because they uh, I think most of the users that had them tended to treat them like game consoles and not so much like computers and so just like somebody might forget about an old game console they had when they were a kid, the, the Commodore 64 is kind of considered that way. So,
2: Are there any other tech channels that you really enjoy or have kind of helped influence you?
3: You know, I don't actually watch that many YouTube channels. In fact, um, I used to subscribe to about eight of them, and uh, actually I've unsubscribed from some of them because they got to where their content wasn't very interesting to me anymore but the only two channels i watch regularly like actually have subscribed to them and actually like watch when a new video comes out is one of your local fellers (laughs) which is Mm techmoan and um, i watch uh, lazy game reviews and um, those are really the only two that i keep up with yeah uh, i probably like techmoan better because uh, lazy game reviews tends to focus more on the software and um, I'm usually more of a hardware person. I like uh, I like to see the the way stuff was designed, the way it, you know, the way it works and stuff like that. And Techmoon tends to focus more on on that.
2: Yeah, he's got a fantastic channel, and uh, you've also got another channel called Eight Bit Keys. Um, do you feel Correct. Computer music's kind of been a bit ignored in the past, or technology around it's been ignored.
3: Ignored? Mm. Or dismissed, maybe. Was, you know, part of the reason I was motivated to do that channel was simply because um you know actually i used to i used to play um keyboards and synthesizers uh, back in the 90s but they were you know uh the how should we say uh, the professional stuff you know korgs Roland, stuff like that and you know i actually lost interest in it i sold all of my gear in the early 2000s and i really hadn't played anything for years and then um you know, when I started doing this retro stuff, I started thinking about some of the keyboards I had as a kid, and I had a bunch of them because it seems like every Christmas I'd get some kind of new Casio or, you know, Yamaha keyboard or something for Christmas. And you know, I-, I used the heck out of them. I never really learned to play much on them, but I always just liked playing around with them, and, and they always end up getting you know destroyed or whatever, and or they break or you know anyway. And so, you yeah, I-, I thought it's like, well, there's a lot of YouTube channels out there covering all the professional stuff. Nobody's covering the old stuff, and so. I thought, well, you know, I I could use the same platform as I use on my 8-Bit Guy channel and and cover these these old keyboards, and and I think there's a lot of interesting technological change. You know, uh, I focus on the 80s in my 8-Bit Guy channel, and the reason I focus on the 80s for the – I mean, sometimes I'll do stuff from the 90s and even even later, but – the reason I like the 80s so much is because the amount of change during that decade was just dramatic. Mm-hmm. You know, like if you look at computers in 1980 versus 1989, in that 10 year period, there's just an enormous change in, in what we would consider, you know, a computer to be. And it was a, the same was true with uh, synthesizers. And so that's kind of why I focus on the 1980s uh, with that channel because I like to show the enormous change from. Uh, the the sound technology in these keyboards from you know 1980 through you know the 90s and um, anyway so that's that's kind of why I, I explore that
0: I think you make an interesting point there as well because you know like like you said you know a few a few minutes ago and we we're talking about your school days you mentioned that you're using like you know Apple and Commodore machines that were maybe like you know five or six years old and it was such a big change in that decade but now, I mean I think my main PC at home is about like seven years old now. And it copes completely mm-hmm. fine. It's the, you, people forget, I think, just how much change did happen in like the eighties and the you know to like the mid nineties, really.
3: Yeah, exactly. And uh, the computer that I use um, for my editing, uh, I actually just upgraded recently, and it's still a five year old machine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and and yet it, you know, it uh, it's not. I don't consider it to be obsolete. But yeah, if you go back to the eighties, a five year old machine was was obsolete. I mean, it was almost like a dinosaur you know but yeah i think the rate of change has has slowed dramatically in the last uh, 10 or 15 years as to i mean sure they're getting faster and you know more ram and the operating systems are getting better but i mean fundamentally speaking if you you put a a 10 year old computer in front of somebody and a one that's of today i mean they operate more or less the same. You know, you're not going to look at one and say, ooh, look at the great graphics this one has compared to that one. I mean, they're more or less the same. I mean, it gets, the only thing that's really changed is the newer ones are a little bit thinner, lighter weight, and, you know, the battery life's better, the CPU's a little faster, but they're you know, generally it's the same computer. And, yeah, but back in the 80s, boy, there, it was, you know, every time I upgraded, uh, like from the VIC-20 to the 64 and then later to the Amiga, uh, the it was just a dramatic change. I mean, it was such an exciting thing to open a new computer and put your first game in and see what it could do because it was, it was just going to blow your mind away. It was so much better (laughs) than the previous model.
0: And it was expensive as well because it's like, you know, every time you got a new computer, most of the peripherals that you had for the old one didn't work with it. And you'd have to buy everything again back then.
3: Yeah, exactly.
2: Well, uh, I noticed you've done recent videos on what you've been sent and, uh, kind of in some of them you're saying ah don't send me too much stuff guys so uh i I guess you've kind of been sent some crazy stuff and you're you're running out of space at the moment
3: well i am running out of space and so i have um narrowed down the uh amount of of things that that i'm accepting but the real problem that i was addressing in that video was i've had About a dozen people, and I think most of these were young boys, probably 10 to 13 years old. I mean, I'm not making that up, because in general, they would actually tell me how old they were. I just don't remember each specific case. But uh, they would ask me if they could donate something to me, and I would, you know, I'm always trying to be really polite with these people, and I'd be like, you know, oh, I really appreciate that offer, but, you know, I don't really have any use for that. And, uh, And then they would ask me for my address anyway. And they say, well, you know, I tell them says, well, you know, look, I, I really don't need that that thing, and they're like, yeah, but I want to send you, uh, you know, this other thing, or I got a surprise, I'm going to send you, you're really gonna like, or or maybe I'll find something later for you, and I don't want to, I'll just I just want to have your address, and of course the thing about it is, my address is not a secret. There's like I don't know, fifteen different ways you could look up my address if you really wanted to know what it was, because it's you know. It's, um it's not like I'm a secret agent or something like that. So, you know, just to stop the argument, I just give them my address. And then, you know, a few days later I'll get these packages in the mail from them and it's the exact thing I told them I didn't want. <laughs> and uh, and then half the time there's some letter saying, "Will you please give a shout out to my YouTube channel that has 15 subscribers on it, you know?" Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, it's really annoying because I I don't want to be a jerk to these people, but you know, I, I I I I can't just show that kind of stuff. I mean, I've been sent like Envelopes of broken RAM modules, uh, you know, uh, an old Pentium 4 processor from like five years ago that's with the pins all broke on the bottom, and I've been sent some floppy disks that were uh, I don't know. They found in a trash can somewhere that had some writing on them, and they there was nothing like you know it's like somebody's spreadsheet or something. And I'm like, what what am I going to do with this? You know, I don't have any <laughs> use for this. And you know, there's you know, in any number of things like that I've been sent, and I'm not going to even show it on camera. You know, my my viewers don't want to see me open that kind of stuff, and I'm sure it's not going to give a shout out to their YouTube channel. Well, and you know, in each, I get a lot of requests for shout-outs to YouTube channels. By the way, I mean probably daily, three or four requests for that. And it's not something I really do in my channel anyway. But for some reason, people seem to think that 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 I should be like their source of advertising. But in each and every one of those cases, I always go look at their YouTube channel to see, you know, what what they're all about. And in the vast majority of cases, they've got, like, 15 or 20 subscribers, and it's very clear why, and I will usually write them back, and I'm pretty blunt about it, and I'll be like, well, look, I I looked at your channel, and, um, you know, I mean, there's a reason you only have 15 subscribers on your channel. It's because I see you've got, like, 15 videos that are five minutes long each, and it looks like you spent about five minutes on each of those videos producing them. And so, you know, that's the reason why, you know, nobody wants to watch it. I said, I could send you half a million people over to your channel and not a single one of them is going to subscribe and they're just going to be mad at me for sending them over there. (laughs) So I always tell them, you know, maybe you should work a little bit harder on your content. And then I'll tell them, you know, um, I spend about 30 to 40 hours for every 15 minute video I produce. Mm -hmm. So if, you know, you want the subscribers, you're going to have to invest the time. And when you invest the time, the subscribers will come on their own. You don't need me to send them over there to your channel.
2: Well, uh, I noticed you mentioned how long it takes to kind of make the videos, and um, you have another job, you're not just a, a YouTuber uh, full-time, so how no, do actually you... actually, I am. Are you are now, okay.
3: And uh, Yeah, how... uh, as of uh, February this year, I, I quit my job to do YouTube full-time. Well, I was going to ask Patreon. how do you find the time, uh, but... Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, so when I used to do uh, a regular job, well, for one thing, I did have one advantage. Uh, with the job I worked, it was an IT job, but... Uh, I was kind of fortunate in that it was one of those where I wasn't really all that busy on most days. I would say most days I had literally like three or four hours of time just, you know, just sitting around waiting for the phone to ring, essentially, for someone to have a a problem. I mean, there were obviously days that there were crises, and I was busy for days on end with, you know, no free time. But, you know, normally speaking, it was not unusual for me to have two or three hours of free time at work to just work on whatever I wanted to, so I would uh, do while I was at work, I would research for my videos, Uh, I would, um, you know, work on some of the scripting, I would maybe if I needed to draw some uh, diagrams or something, I could do that on my computer at work or whatever, which would, um, you know, help me um, get the, you know, in other words, there'd be less to do when I would actually get home and film the episodes. Um, So, uh, but you know, I was only producing about maybe two videos a month when I was working. And now I'm doing like 5 to 6 videos a month uh, now that I'm I'm doing it full time. So I am producing more, uh but uh yeah, I went full time in February uh and uh, it was mostly thanks to Patreon. I uh, I started a Patreon account. Uh, several people had suggested that to me uh, late last year and I really didn't know if that many people would uh support me, but uh yeah, it they they did. Uh, the the numbers rose fairly quickly and uh, yeah, before long, I was, uh, was making as much money on YouTube and Patreon as I was at my job. So I just decided uh, it was uh, time to move on. And, yeah, and so that's what I do.
2: Well, are, th- are there any machines you've always wanted to kind of get your hands on and do a video about that are just really rare or really hard to get hold of?
3: Oh, sure. In fact, um, I'm looking at one right now that I just unboxed a little while ago that, um, uh, that I bought on eBay. I've been looking for it for ages And uh, they don't even show up on eBay. It's called a Laser Compact XT.
0: Wow. (laughs) Never heard of that.
3: (laughs) And, uh, yeah, actually, I remember seeing them as a kid. Uh, Sears used to sell them, and they sold two machines. They sold the Laser 128, which was a clone of the Apple II. And then they had the Laser Compact XT, which looked exactly the same, but it was a, a, the the motherboard was different, and it was a clone of the IBM PC. Now, I've had the Apple II clone version for a while, and I wanted to do a video on it, and I thought, well, you know, it wouldn't be right to do a video on this without having the uh, matching XT version. Because I swear, you put these computers right next to each other, they look identical, except that on the front one says Laser XT, and the other one says Laser 128. <laughs> and But I've been wanting to find the XT version for a long time, and... Um, uh, two of them popped up on eBay recently, and both of them were missing keys on the keyboard, which is so irritating because I'm like, where am I ever going to find keys for those? But uh, I noticed that uh, neither one of them were missing the same keys, so I ended up buying both of them, and I just got one in today. I'll have the, the other one in later this week, and then I should be able, hopefully, between the two of them, you know, restore one complete working XT. And yeah, these machines are rarer than hen's teeth. They're they're really hard to find.
0: Talking about your collection, what's kind of the the prize jewel of your collection then? Like, say, you know, hypothetically, if you could only save one system over everything else, what would it be?
3: Man, well, I'd probably save the machine that I have the most sentimental value towards, which is my uh, Calendar 64C. <laughs> nice. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if there's any one machine. It's not like I, I don't really actually have any machines that are. Uh, supremely valuable. I mean, the Commodore Pit is probably the most valuable one that I have. It's worth maybe $400 or something like that. Yeah, I mean, if I had like a Commodore 65 or some, you know, unusual thing like that, I guess, you know, that would, That would be something to talk about. But like I said, I've got some machines that are fairly rare, but they're not particularly valuable. They're they're rare because nobody knows about them and nobody cares. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Commodore 65s go for a
0: ridiculous price, don't
3: they? Well, the 65 is rare, but people want them. So that's why they cost so much. (laughs) Well,
2: uh, one thing I love on your channel that was totally unusual was that you built that Apple Cat Tower. (laughs) Do you plan on doing any more kind of... uh, Retro computer cat conversions. Was it? For people that didn't, for people that didn't see this, explain what it was. It was, uh, you know, one of those Apple i iMacs with the back um, or eMac, I think that's what it was called. No, it was it was a blueberry iMac. Is what it was. The G three model. Yeah, that was it, and it was a. Cat tower with that on top,
3: and the cat could sit inside. It was
2: amazing—an <laughs> <laughs> actual cat. Yeah.
3: Well, I took the CRT out and I, I put uh, a padding inside, and uh, and then I, I, I mounted it on a pedestal with a scratching post uh, underneath it. And um, actually, I don't have that anymore though, uh, because unfortunately, um, our dog thought that was uh, uh, like a you know, it's like a fire hydrant to him. He he wanted to pee on that, and uh, he peed on it so many times that the uh, wood just rotted out, and I. I didn't feel like rebuilding it, so I ended up just throwing it out. Um, and I, you know, I built that other cat tower. I don't know if you saw. Um, uh, yeah, so that's. not use any well. retro computer parts, but uh, the cats really like that one much better anyway. So,
0: it's cool what people do. I mean, I, I've seen, you know, people like re- repurposing them into like fish bowl or fish tanks, and sure. like Power yeah. G5s into like benches and that kind of thing. I mean, have, have you are you into like mods and that kind of stuff? Would you like to see any more of that?
3: Well, you know, it's interesting. Sometimes I actually get a lot of emails about that, and um, you know, I don't mind so much if someone's going to take like an iMac G three and do that because those are so ubiquitous. And I mean, they're like you can literally find them in like trash dumpsters, and people just throw them away because they they don't even have enough value. Like, you see them on eBay, but nobody will even buy them because they cost more to ship than what people will bid on them for. And um, so, you know, I guess I don't mind when somebody takes one of those. But I get a lot of people like they're, they're they picked up some. You know, a rare vintage machine. Like I've, I've had people ask me, like, hey, I, I picked up this Commodore SX64, and I want to turn it into a fish tank or something. And I'm oh. like, what? <laughs> why would you, why would you do that? Uh, somebody had a VT100 terminal they picked up the other day. Uh, you know, those are really rare, and they, they were asking me about gutting it and putting a, a like a, a PC motherboard in there, and 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 everything. And and again, I was like. That's, that's, that's such a rare piece of hardware to find uh, in good condition these days. I, I, I couldn't possibly condone, you know, tearing that machine apart.
0: <laughs> it's like when you get the guys who are like, you know, sanding down a Commodore 65 to make like a, a work work surface or a bench or something, isn't it?
3: Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> so I guess a lot of it just depends on how rare the machine is, as to well, whether or not I could condone that kind of thing. And um, I, you know, I don't know. I did the cat, the cat thing. That was probably, I guess that's the only time I've ever really done that.
2: Well, I'm I'm going to try and make one and see what my cat thinks. He may enjoy (laughs) it. Um, Do you have any future plans for your channel as well?
3: Uh, No, not at this point. I'm just going to keep doing the thing I'm doing and uh, people seem to like it and the channel's pretty successful right now and it's still growing. Um, I just got... uh, uh, a notification from YouTube. They're sending me uh, my second plaque for my my eight-bit uh, keys channels, so, cause channel. So because that channel's continues to grow as well. So um, yeah, I, don't, I, I you know I've got a, a a list of episodes. You know every time I think of an idea for an episode, I I uh, open my phone and tap it in there and write up a paragraph or something. So because I, I sometimes I'll forget. And so when I get ready to make another episode, I kind of get look through my phone and say, okay, let's see, do I want to make that one? Do I want to make that one or? Sometimes I I want to do one and I'm like well I can't make that one yet because I still haven't found you know part number X Y Z that I need to, to complete that that episode so a lot of them are on kind of indefinite hold until I can find the you know some rare piece of hardware or something like that but uh, but nevertheless I've got like a hundred scripts you know at least in some form of of completion waiting for me to do and I keep thinking of new ones all the time so um, I don't think I'm going to run out of ideas anytime soon I've got a lot of stuff planned. <laughs>
0: So people do want to find you on uh, YouTube. It's just the Eight Bit
3: Guy. I mean, do you tweet or do you uh, Facebook and all that as well? I have a Facebook page and a website and YouTube. I don't have a Twitter or Google Plus or any of that kind of stuff. So, <laughs> excellent. Well, David, really appreciate you joining us this week. Thank you so much for that. Oh, well, you're welcome. Cheers. Thanks, thanks for having that. me on.